I'm Alex Mosad, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Today, we have two uh, new platform, um, I don't know if they're monopoly status yet, but platform, uh, dominant platform businesses, Roblox and Wish, which, are, uh, which have filed their S1s and will be going public in, you know, in the coming weeks here. Um, so we're going to dive into those, starting with Roblox. So if you don't know what Roblox is, um, well, you probably should. It was started in uh, 2004, um, about 16 years ago now. And I mean, it's just it was kind of slowly chugging along for many years. It's kind of that metaverse of video games. Uh, Anyone has seen Ready Player One, right? Where you have a character and that character can go into a bunch of different worlds. That's Roblox. Uh, Remember that bad guy in the movie, Ready Player One, who could, you know, whose plan was to like show you ads and monetize the hell out of out of the game. Um, Well, Roblox has the the killer app of monetization, which is called you. You can purchase in-game money uh, with real world money. And that is effectively how Roblox makes money. What we will see here shortly is that they make a lot of money. And uh, rightly so, frankly. So, again, it kind of was slowly building for many, many years. And then in the past handful of years, the business has just taken off. Here are their, you know, a few of their overarching stats here. 31 million daily active users. 22 billion hours engaged. So, that's kind of usage on the platform. Almost $600 million in revenue, but really the key stat here is this bookings number, $1.2 billion in bookings. And we're going to talk a lot about uh, what that really means. Uh, and then, oh, here's here might possibly a more key stat is look at their ca- operating cash flow. Um, this company is just very healthy, very strong, and kind um, of what the characters look like. You know, and frankly, I think the graphics and the characters look better than, you know, who would be a Roblox competitor is Minecraft. Right? Minecraft is still very boxy. Uh, the graphics and just the, 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 the game experience to me um, is not as good as Roblox is. High level numbers here. Bookings. Okay, bookings. Bookings, key stat here. 2018 bookings. So, Bookings are I purchase in-game money. I haven't used in-game money, but I purchase in-game money. What Roblox is saying is that bookings is not revenue. Technically, I have given cash. I've given 10 bucks to Roblox. And I've now received what they call them Robux. I've received Robux for my $10 of say USD dollars. And that is not considered revenue to Roblox. That is considered bookings. Okay, so that's what this stat is looking at here. Uh, $500 million of, you know, uh, real money exchange for Robux in 2018. Then that jumps to $700 million in 2019. Now look at, now look at 2020, first nine months of 2020. Right in here. Top line. They did 1.2, almost 1.25 billion dollars 
in bookings in the first nine months, right? They have basically almost doubled the bookings they had in all of 2019 in bookings. Why is this significant? Well, eventually, Roblox is going to convert the Robux right into real revenue. That makes sense. But in the meantime, where does this cash sit? It sits in their bank account. So when we look at their free cash flow in a second, this company is just churning off free cash flow. They're not recognizing the revenue yet, which I think is very conservative of them, by the way, like extremely conservative of them. But I mean, from a cash flow standpoint and just a growth standpoint, it's insane what's happening to this business. Their cost of revenue is pretty high, which I'll show you here in a second once I scroll. Their cost of revenue is basically payment processing for them. You'll see it's very high. It's much more than just a few percentage points. The reason why is because it started on PCs and then eventually it made its way into, let's just bucket it as, you know, these um, uh, either iOS, Android, Xbox, other gaming platforms, which for when, when you're buying in-game money, you know, those gaming platforms take a higher uh, take rate, right? 30% now Apple's conceded for some smaller developers down to 15%. Um, Xbox is usually around like 15%. <clears throat> but that is why net net you'll see this cost of revenue line item much higher than you would expect. It's actually their third highest um, expense line item on here, which is kind of impressive and shocking at the same time. Cost of revenue. Look at that. $155 million in the first nine months of 2020. It was $117 million in 2019, $70 million in 2018. But again, this stat is tied to, um, it's not just cost of revenue. This is from bookings, right? So that's why you see this growing faster because the bookings for first nine months in, in 2020 now are almost $1.25 billion. That is when that payment fee is assessed, right? It's off of the bookings volume as opposed to when Roblox is actualizing revenue. That makes sense. Third highest expense of the business, um, which is just in crazy and impressive at the same time. Because if you think about that, I mean, and you look at their other expenses here, developer exchange fees. What is develop? What is that? Developer exchange fees. Uh, a little over $200 million first nine months of 2020. Um, that's almost, uh, that's, that is almost three times what it was first nine months of 2019. That is where your platform dynamic comes in. So you have all these different worlds. I have the game here. Here it is. Okay. Now this is iPad. Okay. So this isn't, you know, it's different, but basically there's a bunch of different games here. And, and, and Roblox will make some of these games, this Welcome to Bloxburg thing, that's a uh, Roblox-created game. You got to pay money to get into this game. So if I say, yeah, let's, let's do it, you know, well, now, now I need, um, now, now you got to pay this 25 Robux, right? $10 US dollars gets me 800 Robux. And what you'll see in these stats is basically each user is paying them about, I think, maybe 10 to $15 a quarter. And that number has been going up very nicely. We'll look at that. But this is basically, you know, this is the idea. 
those third party developers are making these games the games you can you can charge people to play the game but most of these games are kind of freemium model that we're very familiar with you're you're using your robux to buy items uh different skills etc that help you play the game better so that is what this developer exchange fee line item is is they're paying out basically you know these dollars to their third-party developers kind of like a rev share model and they see this to be a huge growth segment for them when you read the s1 here they you know they clearly call out that um, they want this to grow aggressively they want to pay more and more money to third-party developers the only way that they can continue to grow um, as aggressively as they they think they can and want to is to have this third-party developer community uh, really take off even more than it already is i mean $200 $200 million, that's a pretty good chunk of change um, in the first nine months of 2020, especially when you compare that growth rate to 70, roughly $70 million in the same period in 2019. Those third-party developers are pretty happy right now. The next part of this is infrastructure and trust and safety. So infrastructure, okay, you know, that's it's basically... The other cool stat about this company is 80% of the people, they got like 850 employees, 80% of them are engineers and product people. And I love that about this company. Look at the sales and marketing line item. It, it almost doesn't exist. I mean, $40 million. You're doing over $1.2 billion in bookings. And you got over, you know, almost $600 million so far in 2020 on revenue. And you're doing less than 10% in sales and marketing. I mean, I love that about this company. Look, R&D and infrastructure, two separate line items, but infrastructure, I want to break out. Infrastructure is the cloud services, the cloud infrastructure, the engineers, the product people, and all, a lot of that is obviously baked into R&D as well. 80% of this company is staff, product and engineers. Amazing. Trust and safety is actually something else. They have over like 1,500 third-party people. They're not on payroll. Think about these as like moderators. They're paying these people money. These are like moderators. These are people to help uh, in the community. You know, if if there's bad actors, if people are, um, you know, uh, harassing people or just you know uh, being aggressive, not not being a good actor in the Roblox universe, then they have these trust and safety mods. And they do pay them, but they're not on balance. You know, they're not W two. They're not on balance sheet. Um, but they, you know, they do emphasize a lot of this kind of third party workforce as a huge, you know, key component of the business and how they can right rules and standards. Right, platforms one hundred and one rules and standards. How do you curate access into the ecosystem, and how do you curate usage once you are in the ecosystem? This is. It's not so much curating access into the ecosystem. This is curating usage once the players um, are in the ecosystem and playing the game. So uh, that actually is the second largest line item on here, infrastructure and trust and safety. And then um, and then after that comes R&D. So, I mean, you just look at this business and um, it's amazing. But it also, it took them 16 years to get here. 16 years. Uh, imagine that, you know, just the first six to 10 years where, where you're kind of seeing some traction. In the early days, developers, third party developers were making games, but there was no way to monetize it. They were just kind of making games like a cult 
you know, just kind of fan culture, right? So you had third parties, but but a lot of the games were made by Roblox itself, and you had some third party games, but there was no money involved. Um, now it's now it's a real business, and and there's real professional developers and and all that fun stuff. But um, look at this, look at this, DAUs, twenty eighteen. This is in thousands, so 12 million, 2018, 2019, 17 million. First nine months of 2020, 31 million. It is bonkers. DAUs. Crazy. Um, look at this. Hours engaged. Now, here's the average bookings per DAU. So this is that metric, right? In this period, so in 2018, in 2019, in the first nine months of 2020, um, how are, you know, how, how much bookings uh, are they receiving per daily active user? And so you can see here, right, that 2018, 2019 were flat, actually going slightly down. Look at what 20, 2020, First nine months of 2020 are at where they were in 2019 for the full year. So their, their, their average bookings per DAU is, I would argue, 30 to 33% ahead of where they were in 2019. So not only are they getting much more usage, they're actually getting much more monetization per user. Now, here's the money slide. I don't know why they don't highlight this one a little bit more. Look at this. Look at this. Okay. Free cash flow. Remember, everyone makes fun of Amazon. Says, oh, Amazon sucks for the first, well, not anymore, but for the first like 10 years, um, possibly more of Amazon's existence, everyone said the company sucks. It can never make any money. And Jeff Bezos laughed at them and he said, look at my free cash flow. What did he mean by that? Amazon had positive free cash flow. They were reinvesting money back into the business. So, yes, on an accrual, on a P&L, they didn't appear profitable. But that was because they were choosing to reinvest that money back in. They were, they were getting positive free cash flow uh, that whole time. Very different story from some of the other companies that have filed uh, to go public recently. Another one, which I'm going to get to in a second. Look at their free cash flow. $300 million in the first nine months of 2020. That goes back to the bookings. See how they have the bookings number in here? This is what I'm talking about. Um, they, it's just a very strong business. They're keeping the bookings cash. They're not actually, on, a, on, a, on an accrual basis, they're not actualizing the revenue. It's uh. I mean, it's impressive. Then they, uh, yeah, they got some other stuff in here. This is cool. You can see it by, by geography. Really just 68, 70% is from the US and Canada. Europe is 19%. And that's pretty much the business. Now, um, the, you know, what is the elephant? You know, what's the downside here? The elephant in the room is that they were able to kind of get this, uh, you know, Apple... Apple restricts apps that compete against iOS. And 
if they had tried to launch this business on iOS, there's no way it would have been successful. Why? Because they didn't have enough of a following. They didn't have enough traction. Apple just would have easily banned them and, and not allowed them, allowed them to come on, right? You remember I was sharing my screen and I was showing all these different apps. It kind of looks like the Apple App Store for games. And they have their own engine to run these games, right? And there actually is a lot of similarity with just the idea of being able to download a game to your iPhone with a number of key differences. But there is, you know, a lot of similarity in this model. So what's interesting is that the business emulates a number of things that you would find in iOS, in Xbox, right? Where you kind of have games within the game. I get Roblox, but then there's a bunch of games within Roblox. So it's kind of a game within a game within a app store. Assuming these, these development platforms, iOS, Microsoft, Google, don't uh, restrict Roblox and try to compete more aggressively with them, then I think, uh, you know, Roblox is on a fantastic trajectory and just, uh, you know, really set up to continue to, to scale um, quite well. Microsoft does own Minecraft, right? Which owns Xbox. So I don't see this as a, as a primary, as, as a huge risk, but it is, it is a risk, right? That, I mean, essentially um, they have built a game of games, a metaverse, and on the PC, there's no problem in that, right? In the PC, there's no kind of third-party development platform gatekeeper uh, that, that doesn't take too kindly to when apps, uh, you know, emulate features of the operating system. Uh, in this case, the App Store, right? The ability to peruse a bunch of third-party games. That's literally the function of the iOS App Store and the Xbox uh, Game Store, or whatever they call it. I would see that being a very big deal. And I think as we've seen just in the past week or so with Apple kind of conceding on some key, um, you know, uh, uh, rates, you know, lowering their rates for smaller developers, I would say that that is certainly less of a risk and, and, and good for Roblox. Um, but, uh, but again, if Roblox had just tried to go and launch this business, uh, directly onto, um, onto iOS, there's no way they would have allowed it. Just zero chance. So just some last stats, then we'll keep moving here. Look at this. Hours engaged by quarter. Oh my lord. Average bookings per daily user. See that? It's going up. Man, this business is is just in a in a really, really strong position. So, next topic. Is Wish. Uh, so Wish. We've talked about Wish before on the show. Uh, Wish filed their S1 recently. Wish is a marketplace, a product marketplace. You can buy a bunch of different products there. Uh, they're cheap. Okay, that's the whole name of the game. Cheap products. And, you know, Wish classifies it as we are a marketplace for any, any and all socioeconomic, you know, status individuals. Basically means we sell cheap stuff. Generally, lower quality stuff that's really cheap. Um, so how do they do that in a marketplace model? The answer is their sellers are basically all from China. 
These are Chinese manufacturers selling direct to consumer via Wish. Pretty much the name of the game. We've spoken about this as a trend on Amazon's marketplace before, where pre-corona, the top thousand, maybe top 10,000 sellers on Amazon, it was almost, I think it was around 48% were from China, which basically means these are Chinese manufacturers. Almost half of the top 10,000 sellers on Amazon pre-corona were from China. Wish's business is basically you take that 48% and that is their 90% of sellers, right? This is basically just Amazon, but the Chinese manufacturers selling really cheap stuff. And, and the name of the game for Wish and how it's grown over the past few years is basically how well they can handle fulfillment, right? The stuff is coming from China the more they can narrow that fulfillment window because because the idea is you order this thing and it's like two bucks but it'll be here in like two weeks and as we've seen with cons- you know that american consumer they want stuff now not in two weeks not even in two days now like two hours and so basically for wish the name of the game for them has been kind of investing in fulfillment and how do they get more inventory closer to the consumer so they can do the fulfillment faster that's pretty much been the name of the game I like this title from CNBC. Wish shows slow growth and steady losses. Their losses have kind of remained the same over the past few years. Um, their, their growth is slowing. Again, all of these platform businesses, these are growth stocks. These are growth businesses. So when you don't have the growth, you don't get the multiple. You don't get the premium. That's the name of the game. It's all about growth. That's the whole thing, right? Value stocks and growth stocks. These are Absolutely. These are like the growth of growth stocks. If your growth is slowing, probably not off to a good start. So let's look at their numbers. So wish to its credit. I mean, they don't try to skirt this kind of Amazon seller thing. They do mention it, but they definitely are trying to water it down in the filing. Today, most of our merchants are based in China. We initially grew our platform focusing on merchants in China, the world's largest exporter of goods for the last decade. Due to these merchants' strength in selling quality products at competitive prices, I would say, translate, low-quality products at super cheap prices, we continue to expand our merchant base around the world. And then the rest of this thing is starting to show how they have merchants in other places. But that's really not the case. You know, like the one, and they don't, they don't list numbers. The only number they list is, say, we have almost 50,000 Wish local partners. So these are businesses based in the US, for example, but they have over 500,000 merchants. So best case scenario, that's 10%. Worst case scenario, that could be 5%. You know, we don't know how many total merchants, but let's say they've got 600,000 merchants. Now you got, you know, less than 10% of your merchants are local, which by the way, is still a super small number. Our revenue grew from 1.1 billion in 2017 to 1.9 billion in 2019 at a compounded annual growth rate of 31%. Yeah, it's not, you know, it's not amazing. And from 1.3 billion for the first nine months, they were still able to kind of you know, have, have decent growth, 30% growth, uh, 2020 first nine months compared to the first nine months of 2019. Product boost here, it's talking about their logistics services, right? That's really the, the name of the game for these guys. I mean, the, the cost of revenue stat is nice. 
anything about them paying out, you know, their merchants? One point seven, one point nine billion in uh, twenty nineteen. Four hundred forty million cost of revenue. Sales and marketing is a lot, though. I mean, look at this: one point four billion. I mean, look at their operate. Like, look at the. I mean, the opex on product development and their G and A. I mean, it's it's nothing. I mean, the sales and marketing of this. Like, if 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 they turn off the the marketing spigot, this company dies. Look at that. It is ginormous. On the merchant platform in 2019, in response to certain expected changes to the United Universal Postal Union Treaty. Actually, you forgot to mention this. You know, the U.S. has had uh, this treaty, which is why we've talk- talked about on the show how, you know, there's all these reports of, of random people in the U.S. Um, receiving like hair ties in the mail from, from Chinese uh, merchants. And what they do is they're sending you a package and then they're leaving a review from your address kind of on your behalf. They're showing like the, the tracking ID to Amazon. And then they can go and leave a review as you for themselves. It's this whole kind of review hacking scandal. And it was made possible because they have these super low rates in this um, kind of a treaty, international shipping treaty, treaty via the USPS. That you can ship like hair ties and stockings and stuff, um, which costs nothing to make, right? Like a cent in China. And the shipping is super low. And now these sellers can... Chinese sellers can build status on Amazon, for example, can build, you know, ratings and reviews. Massive scandal. We've talked about it before on the show. And look at this here. In response to certain expected changes to this treaty and overall increasing logistics costs globally, particularly costs related to China Post services, we've invested in new logistics offerings and related technology and data science to further diversify our logistics operations. Translate, we're kind of screwed. The percentage of packages shipped through our proprietary logistics platform has grown substantially from 0% to over 90% in September 2020. That just means they're doing the routing on their own. It doesn't mean they have a solution to, this was an arbitrarily low, artificially designated rates from this treaty. Now that it's going away because of the Trump administration, what are they going to do? Of this volume, we perform all of this on behalf of our merchants the remaining, they can choose the carrier. As a result, we grew our logistics revenue. We grew our logistics revenue from over six million to approximately six hundred million. Did I read that right? Six hundred million. They're logging this as logistics revenue. Oh, that seems fishy. That seems super fishy. Logistics revenue. No way. Yeah. Yeah. That. Ooh. 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 This is, this is very, very concerning. Um, okay. Here it is. Page 93. You get that far. Logistics revenue. Our logistics offering for merchants introduced in 2018 is designed for direct end-to-end single-order shipment from a merchant's location to the user. 
Logistics services include transportation and delivery of the merchant's products to the user. Merchants are required to prepay for logistics services on a per-order basis. And what's cost? Cost of revenue includes co-location and data center charges, interchange and other fees for credit card purchasing, services fraud, cost of refunds and chargebacks, shipping charges, tracking costs, warehouse fees, and employee-related costs. Sorry, folks. Business is a sham. Look at this. This is a joke. The only reason they're getting the growth they're getting is because of this logistics revenue thing. This is not okay. Uh, 56 million in logistics revenue Q1, 100 million in Q2, 150 in Q3. You take those things away because here's the real question. What's the margin on the logistics revenue? Is that really revenue or is that more of just a pass through? Should they be recognizing that as revenue? Um, mm, it seems like a nice way to, to bump up your revenue, show the growth. I mean, look at that, right? 360% growth, 460% growth, 300% growth. And meanwhile, their overall revenue is struggling. You know, the, the growth would be nowhere near what it is. 67% overall Q2 revenue growth. Take away that $100 million. Got a very different picture of this business. Logistics in July 2020 in the United States, we launched our most comprehensive logistics offering ever. It's called the A Plus program, which manages first mile collection for merchants to warehousing operations all the way to last mile delivery to the buyer. So it's like there being a 3PL. This expansion of our logistics platform globally has led to an improvement in delivery times towards the end of the third quarter. Yada, yada, yada. I mean, um, oh man, it's so, it's so, it's so fishy. China accounted for substantially all of marketplace and logistics revenue in 2017, 2018, 2019, and during the nine months ended basically our whole business for since, since existence. Don't like this business. Don't like it. Don't like this business. Um, this logistics revenue, they, they already have slowing growth and now they magically have this insane growth rate, you know, in the past year, they've juiced this logistics revenue thing, um, which I don't think is being appropriately recognized as revenue. You know, I, Amazon does make fees from third party sellers, um, you know, uh, around like you, you pay for rent in their warehouse, for example. I, I, I can go and look at how Amazon does revenue recognition as it relates to fulfillment fees for third-party sellers. But I can tell you, Amazon has a lot more of the infrastructure in its possession if it is charging uh, for these fulfillment and logistics revenue-related line items, right? They own the warehouse. Now they own their own trucks, right? Now they're providing a lot of these services themselves. What Wish is doing is acting as a 3PL, as a third-party logistics intermediary. And when you look at that business, the margins that come with that business, right? <clears throat> you shouldn't be looking at Amazon. You should be looking at 
like a, like a Kuhn and Nagel or, 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 um, I mean, like XPO has a 3PL business. I mean, there's a lot of these 3PL, uh, I mean, there's these larger shipping companies, right. That they have a carrier business, they own their own trucks and, and 3PL is a part of their business, but Ooh, this thing is, it's, it's like wedged in here and it's buried. Uh, you know, it's on page 90. And I didn't even really notice it as as deeply as I did until just going through it now with all of you. And it just reeks of financial engineering to get the growth, revenue growth numbers to be higher. And even if there is little to no margin on this, because they don't tell you. Mm-mm-mm. I was already skeptical of this business because I don't like, A, conceptually, I just don't like the fact that... Um, their whole business is taking Chinese manufacturers and bringing them to the United States. Selfishly, what I would prefer and what I'm actually trying to work on in my spare time is to get a, a U.S. marketplace with only U.S. marketplace sellers and to provide that, you know, pick any country. We have people listening from all over the world, right? Wouldn't you love an e-commerce marketplace that is selling exclusively products made in your country? Yes, it would take a little bit of a premium to buy some of that stuff, right? But the point is you're supporting local sellers. These guys are shysters. They're bringing this local seller program in in the last minute so they can go public. It's less than 10% of their sellers. I didn't even get to the whole part of this S1 where they're like featuring their sellers. And, and, and of course, you know, what they, f- what they feature are the local sellers. You know, here's their merchant case studies so these are supposed to be you know like what's that um these other businesses it's hard to find you know they don't say if they're based in china or not vip outlet i was googling some of these companies like vip outlet wish here's google okay here's vip outlet here it is vip outlet and you got these chinese symbols right here but then you look on the site and it doesn't say whether it's from China. There's this other thing from Marketplace Pulse. We like these guys. Wish Marketplace Merchants by Country. 94% China. Conceptually, I just don't like the idea of this. I just don't like the idea. I th- from a business standpoint, there's obviously huge risk. Um, just from a, from a trade war standpoint, from a foreign policy standpoint, from a, from a logistics standpoint, standpoint because that treaty is going away and you're not going to have free shipping as readily available as you used to now they've got these funny games they're playing with the logistics revenue that they're not breaking out in the s1 they're not showing me us what kind of margin they're really not giving much transparency at all all they're saying is oh look at our revenue growth which according to the cnbc article revenue growth is still slowing despite these funny games of huh, 600 million dollars <laughs> they've got $450 million worth of logistics revenue in their 2020 financials. You go back up to the top of this business. And if you look at this business, you go to this number and you take off $450 million from $1.75 billion. You take off $450 million. You got a $1.3 billion revenue business, which is basically flat growth compared to the prior year. That's my impression of wish. I would not touch this thing. I have to see if it fits the plat criteria or not. God, I hope it doesn't, but plat criteria is fixed. We can't make selective choices 
unfortunately, because I would not want this company in Plat. Okay, that's Wish. Before I get to Airbnb, look at this. This was, I thought, pretty funny. You know, we spoke about China, China cracking down on big tech. Look at this tweet. Russia is drafting law to block U.S. social media giants. You know what? And I don't blame them. Don't blame them one bit uh, as we see how these social media platforms are absolutely abusing their monopoly power. Um, and uh, it's going to come back to bite them somewhere. Not pretty. Uh, next topic here is Airbnb expense management. We already spoke about Airbnb initially. So 2015, cost of revenue. Cost of revenue, we've seen that. It grows. It makes sense how that grows. Next one, operations and support. Okay, that grows linearly also. Product development. 580 million 2018 to 980 million in 2019. Much larger jump. $400 million, right? We covered that in the last show. Sales and marketing, 1.6, over $500 million jump. Let's put some uh, context to these years. In 2017, Airbnb was valued at $34 billion. They raised like $4 billion. They had a post-valuation, roughly $34 billion valuation. So that was in 2017, they did that round. So they, you know, they were able to show, hey, look at our growth. We're going we're gonna to net out around $2.5-ish billion in revenue. We had 1.6-ish in the year prior. And look, we're projecting really strongly to have you know, call it 40% year-over-year growth into 2018. That's very strong growth on those sides of numbers. Those are the numbers that Wish was trying. They weren't hitting those numbers. Um, they were trying to say that they were getting those numbers, but they were fudging the numbers. They are fudging the numbers with logistics revenue. Not okay, Wish. And here, uh, on going back to Airbnb, so you got, four, say, 40% year-over-year and on a sizable revenue number, and that was before all of this funny business with crazy product development, crazy sales and marketing additions. They were valued at roughly 13x revenue, to get a $34 billion uh, valuation. And I think back in 2015, they were around an $18 billion valuation, which is where, if you remember, earlier this year in 2020, when Airbnb was in trouble because of COVID, they actually you know, sold a billion dollars worth of equity at, at an $18 billion valuation to these investors and they were giving them debt and equity. Uh, Silver Lake, Sixth Street, and some others. So they were doing a, a little less than a billion dollars in revenue and, you know, um, it was maybe 80% growth from 2015 to 2016 in top line revenue. So at roughly 80% projected, say, year-over-year -year growth they're able to command roughly a 20x revenue multiple. Okay. Now you look at uh, 2020, let's say they're going to be around three-ish billion dollars in revenue. So now just, um, this is crude back of the napkin math, call it a 6x revenue multiple. 2017 with very strong growth, but growth coming down. They're at 13. So it went from, you know, call it 20 
to 13 to now six or seven, right? From 2015 to 2017 to 2020. And these platform stocks are all about growth. Now, the interesting thing to me is that they did go and blow this $900 million uh, on product development and sales and marketing. The other thing, the crazy thing with that is when you look at 2019, uh, product development spend 600, basically $700 million against 2020 product development spend. It's basically the same thing. He didn't, they, management, Brian and management, it doesn't look like they really cut much from the product development team, right? Because you, this number would go down in 2020 if they did. They have their restructuring line item farther down here. So, you know, where you give people severance packages and all that kind of stuff. So it actually doesn't look like they really cut product development, even though they had a almost a you know almost a hundred percent increase, maybe call it eighty percent increase in product development spending in the span of one year. How do you do that? What they said is in sales and marketing, they cut off all their ads, and that was how they you know drastically cut down on the sales and marketing expense. And you can see the difference here, right? Uh, at this same time in 2019, they were spending almost $1.2 billion in sales and marketing. And now this, this year, they're at like $550 million. The large, large majority of that they explained in these numbers is from ad spend and competing against Google and all these kinds of things. Now, the kind of scary thing to me is they didn't see the bump that I would have a expected for that kind of spend from 2018 to 2019. You can see the numbers here. And again, they haven't cut deep cuts into product development. They're still going to have massive losses for this year. I would argue their product development department um, is and operations and support. I mean, they had a small cut in operations and support. Yet they have much less throughput. You got to cut here. You got to get the expenses under control and they, I don't think, have the management fortitude to do it, to make the cuts that are necessary, A. B, their pricing, their pricing is not competitive. You know, they break out here in one of these things, I don't know, there's a million pages in these things. They break out, they're getting roughly 15 cents on the dollar from some mixture of, you know, from, from the host and, and, and the guest. They're getting roughly 15 cents on the dollar for every booking. That model is not competitive in long-term stays, which this S1 puts a huge emphasis on. So, you know, I'm not seeing the bang for the buck on the ability to juice top-line revenue with crazy ad spending. They've now taken it away. We still don't... Q3 is, has always, historically, if you look through the past number of years on Airbnb, they've had positive EBITDA in Q3 um, going back many, 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 many years. Uh, but that's just, a, that's just for some reason it's, and they don't really do a good job explaining why, but Q3, they've always been able to have positive EBITDA. And so now makes the most sense for them to file. I mean, if they were going to go public, regardless of what year they're going to go public, they'd be going public after they release Q3 because it shows positive EBITDA for whatever reason. Um, that's how their business works. Seasonality, something in there, but they get positive EBITDA in Q3. I don't know. Um, the ins and outs of the business. But this one, you know, in my, in my ranking of these three companies from Wish, Airbnb to um, Roblox, Roblox is at the top. Airbnb is somewhere in the middle. 
not saying this is a bad company. I'm just saying with better management, it could be a great company. And wishes at the bottom. I, I really don't like that company. The more and more I've, I've now dug into it. And the last one is Amazon Pharmacy. So a little more than two years ago, Amazon announced roughly a $750 million acquisition of PillPack. And PillPack has been serving, you know, a, a kind of chronic community, an elderly community to get pills. It's a direct-to-consumer pharmacy model. They then put all the pills in nice little packages that break it up daily. If you've ever seen your parents have the little pillbox machine, this is now a pill pack. No longer is the pill box. They come nicely arranged. Here's what you need to take every day. Direct to consumer where, you know, it's much harder for elderly uh, or different, um, you know, patients that can't get to the pharmacy regularly or, you know, getting into that rhythm is just much harder. So this is a direct to consumer model. You don't need the pharmacy, that local pharmacy anymore. It fits right into Amazon's game. What Amazon has done is we've seen them do with other acquisitions is take the technology, take the personnel, and then bring that into the main juggernaut of Amazon. And that is what we have now seen with the launch of Amazon Pharmacy. It's a tidal wave of, of a bunch of repercussions for all of the traditional pharmacy stocks have all um, been pegged down as a result of that. And, you know, if you have a drugstore business, you're, you're, you're trying to figure out what you need to do. You know, the answer at a high level is this, as we have seen with what Walmart has done to successfully compete. You have to embrace your intrinsic advantages. You have to look at what are your assets today and, and understand how those can be a competitive advantage. What was it for Walmart? Pick up in store. Namely, grocery pickup in store. Walmart's e-commerce growth is directly tied to how many people have the Walmart app on their phone. More people that have the Walmart app on their phone and are ordering stuff through the app, whether it's for delivery to the home or pickup in store, the more digital orders, more digital demand Walmart has. The name of the game to compete with any marketplace, any uh, disruptor platform business is you got to get digital demand. And these drugstores don't have digital demand. How do I get people ordering through a digital interface, my website, my app, et cetera, versus just going into the store, right? Which you have billions and billions of dollars and that is an existing behavior. That behavior isn't going to vanish tomorrow, but it is trending down. So, stores. Lots of drugstores have stores, just like Walmart has a lot of local stores, right? 99% of the U.S. population is within 10 miles of a Walmart, whatever that stat is. Pickup in store is one of those kind of uh, learned lessons that we see. It takes a lot of money. Walmart, in addition to buying Jet for a little over $3 billion, has been investing at least a billion dollars every year in e-commerce, in fulfillment. And because they've made those investments, they've been able to get things really good like digital ordering for pickup in store. And then they're able to bring a marketplace dynamic. They're able to bring third-party sellers. They're able to bring more products used, more diversification, more competitive pricing. All the things that that marketplace, that platform business model brings to the table. And then, then you can bring that on top. But you can't go get third-party supply. if You don't have strong digital demand. It's just not going to happen, right? Why would any third-party seller want to join your marketplace to sell stuff to your customers if none of your customers are there? 
If all your customers are coming into the store, how is that third-party seller going to sell stuff to them? They're not. You got to juice the digital demand. And, you know, brass tacks for that is, well, you need a good digital experience. But then how do you, how do you have stuff that people can order and get delivered directly to their home, which could be done in a linear and a reseller model, which Walmart does a lot of, right? Um, and what we've seen with Amazon as well. Amazon is also a linear reseller. What we saw with Amazon over the past now 26 years is that they would start to sell less stuff 1P as a reseller and more stuff 3P. So as more digital demand goes up, you can get more third-party supply. You start selling less of your inventory as a 1P reseller and you get more third-party sellers. That's the way it goes, but it's a multi-multi-year journey. And I would say now generally, you know, drugstores that haven't been investing in digital, that don't have strong digital demand, you, now it's time to start to look at M&A. There are a lot of digital startup, digital pharmacy startups out there, whether in the US, Europe, or other parts of the world. These startups have been building their business, just like Amazon bought PillPack for $750 million. Amazon didn't say, oh, well, we're going to all go do this ourselves. Walmart didn't say, well, we're going to go build Marketplace on our own. Walmart actually did that in 2009, and it failed. Seven years later, Walmart bought Jet.com for $3 billion. Doing this from scratch, now that Amazon's had multiple years post the PillPack acquisition, right? I mean, this has been coming. Not like this just happened overnight. They took, so you had two years from buying PillPack to now full-on integration with Amazon for the offering. It doesn't happen right away. And that's with a sizable acquisition. In my opinion, the only way that drugstores are able to compete is one, through just consolidation, as we're seeing in, in a variety of industries that are trying to compete against uh, marketplace and, and platform business models that are coming into their space. You just see more and more consolidation. You're seeing this in financial services, right? You see more and more big banks consolidating. There's just another mega roll-up with PNC Bank uh, last week. You see consolidation amongst the incumbents. That's one, that's one path. And then you cut costs and you get synergies and, and you kind of push, you kick the can down the road. Or the other path is to take the challenge head on and start to invest in digital. And the way to jumpstart that is through an acquisition. Fortunately, there are a number of promising digital pharmacy startups that are out there with an established team, with established IP, with this established understanding of the business and product market fit. And if you take the scale of an existing incumbent, whether drugstore incumbent or B2B pharmacy distributor, you take the scale that they have on the demand and the supply side, plus the fulfillment, the stores, the infrastructure, and you put these two things together. That can be a winning combination. That's what we've seen Walmart do to huge success. It is a multi-year journey. The acquisition is the start of that journey, not the end. Uh, and I think, though, with that combination, we will be able to see some incumbents successfully compete against the tech monopoly that is Amazon. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you very much for joining us. I'll talk to you soon.